Today is Wednesday, December 28th, and the time is now 6.06 p.m. I'm Vicki Iden here with Seeger Gray, and here are tonight's headlines. Wisconsin taxpayers spent around $76,000 to help fund former State uh, State Natural Resources board member Fred Prane to fight to remain on the board after his term expired. Prane, who was appointed by former Governor Walker in 2015 and announced his resignation last week, was supposed to leave the board in May of 2021. He remained on the board, arguing that because the Republican-led legislature didn't confirm his replacement, he didn't have to give up his seat. This led to a lengthy court battle between Prane and State Attorney General Josh Call that ultimately led to the state Supreme Court ruling that Prane could stay on the board until either his replacement was confirmed or he stepped down. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that the invoices for the taxpayer money spent to pay Prane's legal fees were acquired through an open records request of payments between Prane and his attorney for the period of the legal battle. GOP Assembly Speaker Robin Voss says the state's Economic Development Department, known as WEDIC, is a, quote, abject failure. That's according to a Milwaukee Journal Sentinel interview with the top Republican last week. Voss appointed himself to the oversight board of WEDIC two years ago, but resigned earlier this year saying that he couldn't take it anymore. He criticized the department for providing $5,000 to $10,000 grants to many small businesses, rather than identifying industries and businesses that should receive higher levels of support. Voss says that doing so would attract large businesses to Wisconsin. The WEDC was created by former Governor Scott Walker as part of a campaign promise to create 250,000 jobs within his first term, which he did not achieve. Since the pandemic, WEDIC has given more than 7,200 small businesses and nonprofits grants to move into vacant storefronts through the state's Main Street Bounce Back program. Despite progress in reducing the number of deaths from drunk driving, the number of crashes related to drunk driving continues to climb. In just the past five years, crashes have increased by 40 percent, according to a new report from the Wisconsin State Journal. While city officials cannot stop people from driving drunk, they are making efforts to curb the severity of crashes. Rumble strips on roads, roundabout turns, and more crash-resistant cars have made the difference. Wisconsin remains one of the two states with the highest rate of drinking, just behind New Hampshire. So far this year, there have been 7,148 crashes involving impaired drivers in Wisconsin. 3,437 of those crashes involved injuries, and there have been 167 fatalities as a result of drunk drunk driving this year. Nearly one in five of the state's 4.2 million licensed drivers have had at least one conviction for operating while intoxicated. The city of Madison would like to remind you that, once again, there will not be a trash pickup this Monday, January 2nd. Streets Division offices and drop-off sites will also be closed on Monday. If your trash is usually picked up on Monday, the Streets Division will be picking it up on Tuesday instead. And now, on to today's top stories. 
In the beginning of 2022, then-chair of the Dane County Board, Annalise Eicher, called on the board to act on the plan to consolidate the Dane County Jail and close the aging and hazardous building currently being used. Almost one year later, the future of the project is still in doubt. WORT producer Nate Weggehaupt looks back at what's happened with the jail project in 2022 and where it may be headed in the new year. The Dane County Jail, primarily located above the city-county building in downtown Madison, was first built in 1953 and contains no medical or mental health beds. Instead, jail residents experiencing a medical or mental health emergency are held in solitary confinement cells made of metal and concrete. In June, I visited the jail myself. I sat in a solitary confinement cell in the city-county building jail where incarcerated women who were pregnant would spend their time. There is just one dim light in the cell that never shuts off, dark enough to keep you from reading during the day, bright enough to keep you awake at night. The only sound you would hear in those cells is the sound of the metal food slot, which opens three times a day. That's what they hear. Food's here. We're better than this. For decades, the debate over whether or not to build a new jail has simmered, intensified in recent years by those opposed to any new facility rather than more community resources for those incarcerated. Plans in past years have been stymied by the physical limitations of construction. Back in February of this year, Sheriff Barrett framed building a new jail as a step towards criminal justice reform. The city-county building is doing exactly what it was designed and built to do. And that is be harsh, that is be inhumane, and be a reactionary punishment to crime. In 2022, we have a new philosophy on criminal justice reform. But in 2022, the Dane County Board again stalled over the plan, whether to fund it further amid some opposition from those who believe there shouldn't be a new jail at all, or cut down on the project to bring it closer to its original cost. At the beginning of this year, the Dane County Board was presented with two plans. One would keep the design more or less as approved in 2019, but would up the cost by $22 million. The second option was cheaper, only $7 million over budget, but scaled down the jail to six floors for around 800 jail residents. Neither of those plans were approved by the board, and by March, officials reached a new compromise. That plan, introduced just one day before it was voted on by the Dane County Board, still went over budget by around $16 million. The plan also reduced the size of the jail, but this time a six-story facility for 825 residents. After hours of debate, the plan was deemed a good compromise, and the board approved the new plan on a 29-7 vote. But that piece did not last long because in May, County Executive Joe Parisi announced that the price tag had jumped once again to around $176 million, $10 million more than the board approved just a few months ago. New proposals were drafted. One simply suggested adding $10 million to the budget, while another proposed building an even smaller jail to fit the budget, while proposing policy initiatives to reduce the population of the jail. Both plans failed to pass. During budget deliberations, a very similar plan was unveiled, building a five-story jail with room for around 697 residents and include half a million dollars for criminal justice reforms to cut down on the jail population. District 15 Supervisor April Kigea, who spearheaded the plan for a smaller jail, says that the smaller jail would work if they looked at the facility for what it is, a county jail. 
the uh, sheriff was asking to have a lot of space for different programming and such. And Dane County Jail is meant for a temporary situation, right? We don't need to have all these different programming spaces in there because folks should not be in there long term. Like that's the sole purpose of the jail. We're talking about a county jail versus a prison. The county board approved a budget that included the smaller five-story jail plan in November. At the time, the board also acknowledged that current designs would need to be scrapped, adding even more of a delay to the project. While approving most of the rest of the county's $853 million budget, Executive Parisi nixed the plan to build a five-story jail, reverting to the jail proposal agreed to in March. Parisi pointed to the design work already underway as the fastest path to closing the current jail. Supervisor Kigea says that she was frustrated that the plan that finally made it through the council ultimately got nixed by Parisi. Which was a shock because he's never intervened and said this is a Dane County's role. And then all of a sudden, now that this plan passed, he wanted to interject and say, you know, he's not for that. Parisi only vetoed the jail, meaning that the money to fund criminal justice reforms made it through the budget. To decide how to use the money, the county created a new Criminal Justice Initiatives Committee. While the committee has not yet scheduled its first meeting, they will dissolve on July 1st of next year and present their findings to the board at that time. After a year of rising costs and contentious debates over the future of the Dane County Jail, where are we now? The project is still projected to be $10 million over budget, with board president Patrick Miles telling the State Journal that he fears the project could still rise in price. Last week, Parisi brought forward two new options to move the project forward. The first option would bring the project up to the projected cost, moving $13.5 million away from other already authorized projects to the jail. That's slightly more than the projected cost of the project to account for any minor price increases the project may encounter. This would allow the project to move forward without needing to increase how much the county is borrowing. The second option would put the issue before voters in a referendum next April. That referendum would ask whether the county should borrow an additional $13.5 million. In order for that referendum to get on the ballot for the April 4th election, the county board would need to approve that move at their next meeting on January 19th. District 3 Supervisor and former Board Chair Annalise Eicher says that she supports both options, but if the board can't agree to authorizing the funds themselves, they need to send the issue to the voters. And a number of folks have, have said, you know, we, we, we want the public's input, we want the public to decide, but then there's other folks who are, you know, on the side of, well, the public shouldn't be making that decision because it's the board responsibility. Well, right now the board's not taking any responsibility under Chair Miles because nothing's happening. But County Board Chair Patrick Miles says that he doesn't like either of those options and would rather wait to give more money to the project once the final cost estimate is released in March. We're not going to expend $166 million day one of the project. This is a multi-year project to, you know, three to four years to build this facility. So we can begin that work with the existing funding that's authorized and vote later when we have an accurate estimate of what the total cost is going to be. Both options go to the board at their next meeting on January 19th. The final design for a six-story jail is set to be released next month. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wickey In 2021, over 107,000 people lost their lives to opioids addiction across the country. 
Public officials across the country have been working to address the issue for years, but a new nationwide harm reduction research network is looking to find new ways to address the problem. Earlier today, UW-Madison announced they were joining that network. Dr. Ryan Westergaard with the UW School of Medicine and Public Health joined WORT producer Nate Wiggyhaupt earlier today to talk about the network. Dr. Westergaard, you are sort of leading the UW-Madison coalition in this network. Is that correct? What is this new network? Who is all involved and what are you looking to accomplish? The new initiative is, is called the National Harm Reduction Research Network, and it is an initi- a national initiative funded by the National Institutes of Health under their large HEAL initiative, which is the government's response to the overdose crisis. And nationally, it is a consortium of nine research projects a- across the country, which are all aiming toward reducing the harms of the substance use disorder epidemic that is affecting our country. Here in Wisconsin, our project is a partnership between the research unit that I lead at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, the State Health Department, or DHS, and an organization called Vivent Health, which has offices in 10 cities around the country and has been a leader in both HIV prevention and care, as well as harm reduction services for people who use drugs for the past 25 years. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about Vivent Health. Uh, They are a nonprofit group, like you said, here in Wisconsin. And and like you said, they're they're a little bit more known for providing HIV AIDS resources. Why why are they involved in this network and what will they be providing? It's a great question. So the field of harm reduction in this country was really developed in response to the AIDS epidemic of the late 1980s and early 1990s. It quickly became known that that injection drug use, um, particularly the injecting with contaminated needles or syringes, was one of the main ways that the HIV virus was transmitted. So services that provide sterile injection equipment, needles, syringes, and the other other equipment that people can use will will reduce the risk of of HIV transmission. And it's been a very effective way of reducing HIV risk in that community. So Vivant Health as an organization that strives to serve people who are infected with HIV and at risk for HIV have been leaders in that area of, of, of syringe services for, as I said, more than 25 years. So in the current epidemic of drug use, while we still have a relatively low incidence of HIV among people who use dr- drugs, here in Wisconsin, like the rest of the country, the risk of death from overdose has skyrocketed. In the same community partnerships, the same agencies that have developed trusting relationships with people who are affected by severe drug use disorders are in a good position to implement the new strategies that are needed to prevent fatal overdose. And these new things include the um, distribution of naloxone or Narcan, which is the reversal agent, which can rescue someone if they have an opioid overdose, as well as linkage to services that are available in the community for people who are interested and ready for addiction treatment, as well as testing and prevention of communicable diseases. So it's not a single a single uh, issue that we're trying to address. It's drug user health writ large. And the key ingredient that we found in our research, and I think is well established, is 
relationships with the community in an environment that puts the person first, which is non-stigmatizing, and engenders trust that people can come to us regardless of their their current situation with drug use and know that they'll get services that'll keep them safe. Now, the name of this new initiative is the National Harm Reduction Research Network. So I want to ask, why is this so important? Obviously, the opioid crisis is a pretty major problem that needs addressing, but why focus on harm reduction with this? What is it about harm reduction that makes it such such an effective tool? What's critical about harm reduction at, at this moment in the epidemic is is that people are dying at a rapid rate despite historic investments in addiction treatment over the past five years. So at the same time that we've invested so heavily in expanding addiction treatment in, in more settings, all those things, those, which is a good thing, but at that same time, the risk of drug use has gotten increased. It has increased substantially because of fentanyl. So as the NIH or the National Institute of Drug Abuse Director, uh, Dr. Volkoff has said, the, the key is keeping people alive so they can benefit from the growing list of resources for people who need drug treatment. A drug overdose with fentanyl can take the life of someone in minutes. So we need to make sure urgently that strategies to to prevent overdose are accessible to everyone. Otherwise, they're not going to survive to the point where they can enter treatment, get their substance use disorder under control, and return to a healthy life for um, you know, for the future. So I, I think urgent is an is an appropriate word in this in this sense because we are losing many more people than we need to. Greater than 1,400 Wisconsin residents lost their lives to a drug overdose in 2021. That was a rec- broke the record that was set just one year earlier in 2020. So this is a growing problem, and the the need for new strategies is quite urgent. And what will you be actually doing with this new initiative? How will you be researching this topic here? The the network, as you mentioned, is taking place in nine cities or, or nine research units around the country. And, and that's important because delivery of harm reduction services needs to be tailored to the needs of individual communities. And a community of people affected by drug addiction in Los Angeles is going to be very different than one in the Bronx in New York and in rural Appalachia and in central southeastern Wisconsin. So a key component of the research in all of these settings is to engage the community. We plan to create a community advisory board where we hear the, from the perspectives and the experiences of people who are using drugs about their most pressing health issues, what are their greatest needs, what are the manners in which they that they prefer and can receive services, and then build new strategies to deliver harm reduction services that are most responsive to those needs and preferences. So we really aim for this to be a participatory research. That people we want people who use drugs to feel like they're they're not being they're not being researched on, but they are conducting research with the university research team and and Vivant Health to work as in partnership to address this crisis that we're experiencing of overdose that's affecting people who are living with addiction. Now, you mentioned it a few times now, but the idea of this sort of trust-based relationship and you in the press release, you talk about how it's important for this sort of research to be built on this trust-based relationship. How, how are you able to build that trust? Well, one of the, the, one of the mantras in harm reduction services is, is meeting people where they are. To, to not bring any judgment to the relationships. 
this is so important. We've learned why this is so important because of the ways, all the negative impacts that we've observed from criminalization of drug abuse. When people are treated like they're doing something wrong, that they're criminals, um, they're not likely to come into that space and ask for help. Harm reduction services, that, such as those that are provided by Vivant Health, meet people um, despite whatever is going on in their life. They bring no, no judgment. There's nothing, there is nothing wrong with people. They are living with a chronic health condition that we call substance use disorder or addiction, and they need help. So the goal is to leave all of the, all of the judgment, all the stigmatization that can accompany people who are living with substance use disorder and know that we are here to help you to help protect your health. And when people know that there is a source of that kind of support in their community where they can go without fear of judgment, they will make use of that. And the individuals who, who staff these agencies, who provide syringe services, who provide Narcan, individual, you know, the person, people who come into those spaces, know them, they develop um, a rapport, a trusting relationship with them, so that at the moment that someone needs help, is ready for a referral to treatment, or has a question, they, they know that they're comfortable asking and, and receiving the help that they need. Do you have just any final thoughts on this initiative that you'd like to share with everyone? I'd like people to, to recognize or realize that, that drug addiction is the number one cause of death among young adults in Wisconsin. Greater than 1,400 individuals lost their life from a drug overdose in 2021. Majority of those were, were young adults with many years more to live, and most, if not all, could have been prevented if someone close by had naloxone and was trained to recognize the signs of an overdose and administer the reversal agent. Given all that, one of the most important things that people can do is get uh, training and education and get naloxone to have, particularly if someone in your family is affected by opioid use disorder, know how to rescue them, how to save their life. And there are agencies in most communities in Wisconsin that can provide and distribute naloxone for free. People can call 211 to find an agency in their community that can provide that, and I encourage everybody to do so. I've been talking with Dr. Ryan Westergaard, professor of medicine at the UW School of Medicine and Public Health, about the new National Harm Reduction Research Network working to prevent overdose deaths across the country. Dr. Westergaard, thank you so much again for talking with me. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate your attention to this issue. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Seeger Gray, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for joining us. This weekend, many people would be looking to get outside and enjoy a warm end to 2022. On this episode of Parks and Landmarks, feature contributor Sean Bull examines a park that should let you beat the crowds. You're listening to Parks and Landmarks, an exploration of the underrated outdoors. I'm Sean Bull. Having fun outside in winter in the Midwest often comes down to making the best of poor conditions. As soon as the temperature drops, we wish for snow and ice, anything to at least offset the uncomfortable chill 
with the fun of sliding around on various specialty shoes. But all the while, as we skate and ski, few of us are truly content. We wish, secretly, that it all would melt and we could get back to normal again. At the time this first airs, those wishes have been granted. The first big melt of this winter season is underway. But unfortunately, this is not an early slice of April like the forecast might make it seem. Yes, the air feels nice, but on the ground, it's a different story. All the accumulated snow and ice has to go somewhere, and it doesn't drain away very quickly. If you're trying to get outside this weekend to enjoy the nicer weather, you might find your options are limited. In these conditions, everything just stays wet. Most trails are a soupy mess, and you can't even embrace the encompassing dampness. It's still too cold to go out on the lakes. I say this from a generalist beginner's perspective. Obviously, with the right equipment, you can do anything. But most of us are left racking our brains for what this improved weather is actually good for. The natural solution is to find a trail minimally affected by all this swampiness. But in Dane County, that's going to be tough. Most of the Madison area is pretty flat and swampy. Consequently, I suspect we're going to see a lot of people head up to Devil's Lake this weekend. It's a sensible choice, as it offers some of the only hiking in the area where the trails are consistently either underlaid with rocks or elevated enough that the meltwater will run off somewhere else. If you don't mind crowds, then great, that's your weekend plans. But for the agoraphobes who are this segment's true target audience, I have an alternative. It's a bit more of a drive, but I think that's part of the appeal. If you enjoy driving, the driftless parts of Wisconsin and Illinois can be quite pleasant. And for an off-the-beaten-path hike, Apple River Canyon is worth the trip. Apple River Canyon State Park is a 1,900-acre preserve in the northwest corner of Illinois. Its name is more descriptive than many parks, but first-time visitors to this part of the state will still be taken aback by its effortless beauty. The park offers a few trails, no electricity, and the only running water is in the river itself. There's nothing wrong with this inherently. A park can be many degrees of simple or fancy, primitive or modern. I do wish it felt more intentional and not like a result of budget cuts. Hiking the limestone bluffs grants you commanding views of the river, but then you hike farther and usually the trails just kind of end. I suppose the geography of the park, several disconnected bluffs centered around a long valley, lends itself to trails that sort of radiate out from the middle. It's just not clear if they're unfinished, or if perhaps they reach to the edge of the property. Either way, these hills and valleys, bluffs and streams are a sight to behold. And it doesn't hurt that the Illinois state parks are free to enter. That kind of makes this feel like a really impressive county park instead. And actually, Apple River Canyon's simplicity belies an important past. Let's look for a few minutes at its history and how that relates to the evolution of parks in general. The purposes of a state park are many. At its most lofty, a park aspires to preserve the world in its natural state, to provide a place where life can flourish, unmolested by human impulses. In a more practical application, parks are a refuge not for nature, but for us, a place where we can take a beat, reset, and relax. In most instances, 
Their mission serves a mix of both, and the most successful parks are both wild and accessible. Illinois is a great example of this. It's no coincidence that the state's most trafficked park happens to be right in the middle, 15 minutes from two interstates that cut across the land of Lincoln. For people journeying across the country, Starved Rock State Park is a natural reprieve, better than any oasis the state could throw over the highway. After hours or even days on the road, a little time in nature is the perfect way for the tired traveler to recharge. In this function, Apple River Canyon was the starved rock of its day, perhaps the most prominent natural attraction along one of Illinois' busiest highways. Before the Civil War, Galena, Illinois was perhaps the lead capital of America. But despite holding this distinguished title, the city wasn't the easiest to reach. I mean, any road trip before cars sounds terrible, but at this time, Galena was the western frontier and especially hard to reach. The main way of traveling to Galena was a stagecoach that left daily from Chicago. This coach would average a breakneck five miles an hour, which meant the one-way trip could take a whole three days. Given this leisurely pace, it was necessary that a bunch of little towns formed to supply the trail. Like convenience stores and motels along a modern freeway, these towns catered to a traveler's needs, wherever they might stop along the way. One such town was Millville, Illinois. Nestled along the Apple River, Millville was an ideal rest stop. The river, for the most part, is small yet swift. In this valley, the otherwise treacherous water spreads out and flattens over a wide bed of rocks. This solid foundation makes this section of the river much safer to cross, but you can imagine that driving straight through water was never a small undertaking. So many things could go catastrophically wrong, and it's helpful to have a town full of people on hand for the crossing, just in case. Of course, the people of Millville were happy to sell travelers food or rooms for a night. As long as the stagecoaches supplied customers, the town would remain strong. When people chose to stop in Millville over another local town, I imagine they did so for more than fresh-baked pies. The whole driftless area of northwest Illinois and southwest Wisconsin is idyllically beautiful. Ask anyone who lives within 20 miles of Viroqua, they won't shut up about it. But here, the characteristic driftless hills are cleaved in half, revealing the dramatic limestone layers beneath. If you chose to stop your stagecoach here, the background of your picnic would rival any scenery the Midwest has to offer. Of course, the stagecoach was a horrible way to travel. I already mentioned the five miles per hour of it all, but it's also worth remembering that the person riding shotgun was literally tasked with defending the coach at gunpoint. Before long, a rail line was built to connect Chicago and Galena, and it was a huge improvement. Not only could people travel between the cities faster, but the lead they mined no longer had to be shipped out on the river. As far as the miners were concerned, the railway represented winds all around. But unfortunately, that wasn't true for everyone. The new rail line was straighter than the stagecoach trail, and it skipped over some of the towns the trail had serviced. Millville was suddenly a mill, a pretty canyon, and not much else. For a while, the undercut town died a slow death without its economic lifeblood, the town withered. But it was an act of God, not government, that finally did Millville in. In 1892, torrential rains caused a dam on Clear Creek to burst. 
Water rushed into the Apple River, and the canyon walls prevented it from spreading out. The small, low-lying town of Millville was hit with the water's full force and obliterated. Though the state park was established over the same grounds on which the town stood, it shows no traces of Millville's existence. In one final blow, the town was wiped from the map. Nowadays, Apple River Canyon is no stopover. It's miles out of the way of all major routes, and though it's now much less than a day's journey away, Galena is still very much its own destination. Even in recreation, local competition now has the park pigeonholed. Not that Apple River Canyon could really facilitate boating or a golf course, but artificial lakes and country clubs up the road preempt the question entirely. So the people who come to Apple River Canyon do so with specific activities in mind. They want to hike one of the trails, or to fish for trout, or simply to sit in nature not overrun by everyone with a Yahoo search toolbar and a 312 area code. These days, that's increasingly hard to do. In March of 2020, all events were cancelled, indoor gathering was discouraged, and everyone decided that hiking was now their new favorite thing. This has made my job a little more difficult. Years ago, when I first started writing features like this, it was easy to find underrated parks that deserved a highlight. But for the last two years, every outdoor recreation area has gotten exactly as many visitors as it deserves. It's possible that COVID has permanently reawakened our collective love of the outdoors. Anecdotally, it doesn't seem like park attendance will slow anytime soon. These conditions are perfect for a remote park like Apple River Canyon. On a nice day, it can get lively, but it's far less crowded than most parks its size. When you visit today, you're unlikely to find precious metal amongst the driftless hills of Illinois. But if you're lucky, you might find peace and quiet. At a state park in 2022, that might be the rarest prize of all. For WORT News, I'm Sean Bull. We go now to 1962 for a recap of some of the major civil rights stories on campus and in city politics. Stu Levitan has the memories of the movement from 60 years ago. All these come They melt into a dream Madison in the 60s, 1962, when the civil rights movement is a major factor on campus and in city politics. Banning bias bequests. The year is not yet a week old when the regents of the University of Wisconsin vote 5-3 to three to make the UW the first Big Ten school to adopt a policy banning gifts or grants based on bias just eight months after the regents accepted a $100,000 bequest to aid, quote, worthy and needy Gentile Protestant students. The policy bans gifts with discriminatory restrictions based upon race, color, or creed, but not national origin. University Vice President Fred Harvey Harrington explains that, as the campus with the seventh largest foreign student body in the United States, the university needs to allow for grants for international students. Regent Harold Connick mockingly moves to add a ban on bias based on sex, 
which he withdraws after Regent Matt Werner calls the amendment ridiculous and frivolous. UW President Conrad Elvium says donors have the right to support any group they wish, but that, quote, such support should not be given through the state of Wisconsin or the university, but given directly to individuals or outside organizations. The only other Big Ten school with such a policy is the University of Illinois, where the rule is set by statute. In late February, attorney Lloyd Barbie, president of the state NAACP, releases the draft of a tough human rights ordinance for the city's consideration. The measure would set a maximum fine of $200 or 30 days in jail for discrimination on the basis of race, color, creed, ancestry, or national origin, and apply to housing, employment, and public accommodations. The proposal, which also creates a nine-member city commission with a full-time director, is referred to the Mayor's Commission on Human Rights, which Barbie chairs. Eight weeks later, when Barbie's term expires, Mayor Henry Reynolds declines to reappoint him. At the behest of national NAACP officials, Barbie soon moves to Milwaukee to take on segregation in the public schools. The commission takes no action on the draft ordinance. Candid Cameras Curtailed In March, an instructor with the UW Extension's Bureau of Audiovisual Instruction sparks a statewide controversy by publicly resigning to protest the university's suppression of his undercover film To Find a Home, which shows 13 incidents of housing discrimination in Madison. Instructor Stuart Honish and NAACP President Barbie had explained the candid filming techniques to Extension officials in 1960. After Barbie raised $3,000 of the film's $4,000 budget, Extension officials provided the final $1,000 and approved the plan. But when Honish screens a rough cut in January 1962, the same officials conclude the university cannot, quote, in good conscience, release the footage because it violates the privacy of those lying to black apartment seekers. Hanish and Barbie propose blocking the faces and street addresses of those engaging in discrimination, but the administrators insist Hanish recreate the film using actors. Hanish, soon to be elected to the city NAACP Board of Directors, writes an angry resignation letter instead and gives it to the Capital Times for Monday's front page, March 19th. Tuesday morning, the state NAACP starts picketing the extension offices, first on the Madison campus, then around the state. There are placards reading, UW protects bigots, and sifting, winnowing, and film burning. UW President Elvium, who in 1931 publicly endorsed a restrictive covenant barring, quote, any person of the Ethiopian race from living or owning property in his suburban subdivision, says he has, quote, a moral and ethical problem with the candid camera work and releases a statement, quote, The use of hidden cameras and microphones to force individuals to testify against themselves has overtones of the police state and violates a basic freedom our Constitution guarantees. On Wednesday, University Vice President Harrington meets with Hanish, Barbie, and other NAACP officials at the YWCA trying to clear the air. Harrington agrees that Hanish and Barbie were open about using candid footage, but says that information didn't get to central administration. 
We made a mistake to have allowed the hidden microphones and cameras, he says. Having made it, we do not feel we should carry it forward. On Sunday, U.S. Representative Adam Clayton Powell Jr., Democrat of New York, chair of the House Labor and Education Committee, demands a copy of the film, threatening a subpoena if it is not provided. Elvium refuses, sending instead a certified typewritten transcript of the film, including footage not included in the film's rough cut. The Wisconsin Student Association Student Senate endorses the administration's action a few days later, stating that the fight against racial discrimination, quote, is not worth affronting the same spirit of fair play that is offended by discrimination. The controversy splits traditional allies. The Wisconsin Civil Liberties Union Board of Directors, which includes prominent Democratic attorney and future federal judge James E. Doyle, UW Law Professors William Gorham Rice and Abner Brody, the Reverends Max Gabler and Alfred Swan, and Capital Times editor Miles McMillan, votes unanimously to condemn hidden microphones and cameras as, quote, an unwarranted invasion of privacy and supports the administration. McMillan backs his board with an editorial on March 23rd, calling on the NAACP to, quote, learn that the ends do not justify the means. The liberal group Americans for Democratic Action disagrees, siding with the NAACP and calling for the film's release. The administration doesn't budge, releasing only the 80-page transcript and directing Hanish's colleague Jackson Tiffany to recreate the undercover footage with actors. The original film is locked away, but not destroyed as many seem to think. The regions take no formal action, but individual members express their approval of how Elvium and Harrington handled the controversy. Martin and Malcolm The two most important black leaders in America come to campus in the spring of 1962, only a few days apart. But their schedule is closer than their messages. On Friday, March 30th, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. delivers the second annual Jonas Rosenfeld Lecture before a very supportive capacity crowd at the Union Theater on the topic, The Future of Integration. Segregation is on its deathbed, the Baptist preacher declares, and the only problem is how expensive the nation will make its funeral. On Monday, April 2nd, Malcolm X takes a different tack, calling for racial separation in a Great Hall address entitled Black Nationalism in America. We reject integration, period, the black Muslim leader declares. We've outgrown it. And Malcolm's visit to Madison shows that the overwhelmingly white new left has a profound impact on emerging black political consciousness, thanks to the brilliant history graduate student Martin Sklar, one of the founders and editors of the journal Studies on the Left. In late 1961, Sklar received an unsolicited 100-page submission from a black former Communist Party functionary and would-be playwright named Harold Cruz, arguing that black nationalism and not integration was the prevailing black position. He edits it into a powerful 30-page essay, Revolutionary Nationalism and the Afro-American. The Cruz essay becomes the centerpiece of the study's spring 1962 issue on the new radicalism and the Afro-American, and sparks a new debate among young black intellectuals. It becomes a proximate cause for Huey P. Newton and others at UC Berkeley to form the Afro-American Association, 
which would later beget the Revolutionary Action Movement, which helped beget the Black Panther Party. The publication is so important that when Malcolm X comes to Madison in April, he breaks his own rules about not visiting a white person's residence and spends two hours after the speech in deep discussion with a mainly white group at Sklar's small house on West Dayton Street. After a lengthy colloquy with Fred Ciperin on the relative significance of race and class in the Cuban Revolution, Malcolm embraces Ciperin and says, Freddie... If it was up to me, you could have an X. Also that spring, race and racism dominate the campaign by Alderman Harold E. Babe Rohr for a fourth term representing the blue-collar 14th Ward. Rohr, the powerful business agent for the Painters' Union and vice chair of the Building and Trades Council, calls the NAACP a malicious force and his challenger Jan Marfiak its hand-picked candidate. Marfiak, an administrative assistant with the Department of Motor Vehicles, says he is not a member of the association, disagrees with some of its tactics, and has never even met NAACP President Odell Taliaferro. At a joint appearance at the elementary school with the city's highest percentage of non-white pupils, Rohr says blacks hurt themselves backing bills like the NAACP's proposed human rights ordinance. He denies being prejudiced, declaring, quote, some of my best friends are Negroes. Then someone starts sending anonymous postcards toward voters, claiming Marfiak lives in a trailer, doesn't pay taxes, and is himself black. Although none of this is true, Rohr refuses to disavow the lies. I had nothing to do with this, he insists. At another campaign forum in late March, someone asks Rohr point-blank, do you think that Mr. Marfiak is a Negro? When Rohr won't answer, Marfiak shoots to his feet. In the sense of fair play, Mr. Rohr, will you tell me to my face that I am not a Negro? He won't. I am not going to state whether you are or are not a Negro, Rohr replies. Both papers endorse Marfiak with blistering editorials. Roar seeks to whip up race, hate, and fear to divert attention from the real issues, the liberal Capital Times declares. The conservative Wisconsin State Journal denounces Roar's, quote, racist line and his, quote, plans to fan the flames of prejudice rather than work for solutions. In the campaign's waning days, Roar puts out a piece of literature with an old photo of popular state Senator Horace Wilkie shaking his hand, much to Wilkie's displeasure. I deplore the injection of the race issue into this year's campaign by Rohr's supporters, and I emphatically disagree with Rohr's refusal to disavow such action, Wilkie says, explicitly stating he's not supporting Rohr's re-election. But 14th Ward voters do, re-electing Rohr with almost 55% of the heavy turnout. Despite its disappointment over the election, the State Journal still pushes politics over protest. We can do without the marchers, it editorializes on April 27th. The picketing act has always had an element of phoniness in any nation where everyone has the vote. The recent trend has not only made it tiresome, but a bit frightening. It has no legitimate place in a free society where we govern ourselves by the ballot box and not street agitation. Let them write to their congressmen. In September, 
U.S. Army Captain James Gregory took a year's leave from the Oklahoma Army Reserve to study at the University of Wisconsin on a grant from the American Cancer Society. But a month after classes start, the 28-year-old is still without a place for his house trailer, apparently because he is black. Several sites seemed promising, but as soon as proprietors saw him, all apparent vacancies disappeared forcing him to bust his budget by staying at a downtown hotel with his wife and four small children. When news of Gregory's plight becomes public, Mrs. Arnold Jackson, wife of the director of the Jackson Clinic, offers him a spot on the large family property overlooking the UW Arboretum. It's an appealing offer. The heavily landscaped 10-acre property and home are designed by Jackson family friend Frank Lloyd Wright. But because of the narrow road and sharp curve approaching the site, Gregory keeps looking, even checking out a trailer court 30 miles from campus. Finally, on October 9th, G.A. Rothfuss, a meteorologist with the Madison Weather Bureau, rents Gregory a site just north of town. I felt so sorry for those lovely kids cooped up in a hotel room, Mrs. Rothfuss tells the Capital Times. I don't care what color a person's skin is if he is a nice person. These people needed help, and I'm glad we could help them. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your listener-sponsored, movement-memorializing WORT News Team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show. Thank you for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer was David Ahrens. Special thanks to feature contributors Sean Bull and Stu Levitan. Chuck Kademan engineered tonight's broadcast. Nate Weggie helped produce this newscast. And Shelley Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Vicki Iden. And I'm your host, Seeger Gray. Up next is Query with a special from Out in the Bay. Good night.